Well, it's nice to be back uh, with you today again. And in case you weren't aware and want to make other arrangements, I'm here next Sunday morning as well. Uh, so you have a, a double whammy of the old man, uh, but trust we'll have a good time together as we focus not upon me, but upon God's word. Great to see churches coming out of COVID uh, in different ways and in uh, different formats, some going back to the old normal, some developing a new normal, and some still kind of dithering in between. Uh, we're good to be with you folk and to share with you today. I want to read uh, from Philippians 4 uh, this morning and then to have a look at Philippians chapter 1 next week in God's will. So today, Philippians 4, and I want to read from verse 10 through to verse 23. Uh, Our theme is learning contentment. So when you hear these words read, you'll maybe pick up on what our text is for this morning. Reading Philippians 4, verse 10 to the end. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you're renewed concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, In the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And our text at the end of verse 11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. If you are of a certain vintage here this morning, you will be able to remember the winter of discontent. 
However, you shouldn't be smiling and nodding your head just now unless you like admitting you're over 50 or are a student of history, one of the two. Uh, but that phrase, a winter of discontent, uh, indicated a, a year or a winter period of strikes and fuel shortages and rising costs, etc., in our nation. But it wasn't the only or the first period of discontent uh, either in our nation or elsewhere. John Steinbach had, in fact, used that very phrase uh, as part of the title of his very last novel back in 1961. And going back a bit before that, Shakespeare, this is just showing off how educated I am, I can Google as well as the next person. Uh, Shakespeare used the phrase in the winter of our discontent uh, in one of his uh, many writings. You and I would have very little difficulty, I think, this morning, recognizing uh, the discontentment that is very much part of our current society. And it's also sometimes part of our, our church life, if we're honest, as well. In one conversation I had this week, the following issues of discontent were touched on. The NHS, getting a GP appointment, getting an MOT test date, getting a dentist to extract a tooth, that was my problem, and I was told I'd have to wait for four months to get it extracted on the NHS. Problems with the passport office, issues with bin collection, the price of car fuel, the uncertainties of holiday flight bookings, rising mortgage payments, I think there's probably more. I obviously was in a crowd of grumpy old men and gave my two penny worth as well. But I think that's pretty much standard fare wherever you are in society today. And so it's quite a breathtaking thing to read those words of the apostle in verse 11 and allow them to sink into our thinking where he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And I want to suggest, first of all, there's necessary learning implied in what he says. Necessary learning. He repeats himself in verses 11 and 12. And in both cases, he's talking about learning contentment. So in verse 11, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And then in verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Now, of course, repeating ourselves at a certain age in life is quite a common thing, and we don't even realize we've done it until the kids taught to say, Dad, you've heard that story dozens of times already. Uh, find something new to say. Or sometimes we repeat ourselves and we're just padding things out. Uh, one of the customs we had as kiddies, uh, whether we liked it or not, was to send thank you letters to grandparents uh, for Christmas presents or for birthday presents. And as an eight, nine, ten-year-old, 
trying to write to 70-year-olds, not really quite sure what to say, so you say, dear granny, thank you for the jigsaw puzzle. It was everything I ever wanted, <laughs> or not. Um, and after that, you had to start padding. I mean, what do you tell your granny in England when you're living in Kenya? And you sort of start to pad out, and obviously then you sometimes repeat yourself. We can be absolutely positive that in Paul's case here in Philippians 4, he wasn't simply padding out, and he wasn't simply an old man who didn't realize he already said the thing one verse earlier. He's repeating it deliberately and repeating it for emphasis. Contentment was something which he himself had to learn. It's a process of gradually developing that sense of contentment, learning and learning and learning over a period of time. Paul didn't see contentment as being a default mode in the human makeup. It wasn't that some people are born placid, complacent, couldn't be bothered and content. It wasn't that uh, if you'd done a personality test on uh, solo Tarsus, uh, you'd have come up with the results at the end of the day. This man uh, can't be bothered about anything. He is utterly and completely content. That's not how he was in himself. Neither was his contentment the immediate fruit of his conversion. There are things that do change overnight. Uh, the day we convert, and it's a brilliant experience to, to find how the, the power of God through his spirit at conversion can take little bits of our lives and turn them upside down. And I think every Christian here could think of some things in their lives that, that change dramatically and permanently the day they're converted. But if we're honest, there's a whole pile of stuff that doesn't change overnight the day we convert it. And quite often it's the stuff we wish had changed and disappeared overnight, but hasn't. Paul discovered that being transformed into the image and likeness of God's dear son starts at conversion. But it's an ongoing process that we learn by God's Spirit through His Word to be changed, and that process continues until we reach glory itself and are perfected in His presence. So when He says, I've learned to be content, I've learned the secret of being content in, every, in any and every circumstance. He's saying, here's one thing that was neither in my personality prior to conversion, nor an instantaneous change at the moment of my conversion. It's something I had to apply my mind and my heart and my thought and my spirit to. I hope you take some comfort from that this morning. Uh, if you're very aware of words or thoughts or attitudes of discontentment during this past week. You've had a blue day and you've given off about anybody and everything you can think of. And now you're sitting in church and go, oh, I'm going to get a, a rough time today. I'm going to be told off no ends um, on this theory of uh, being content. Then relax. It's a lesson that has to be learned 
over a period of time, not a gift to be claimed in a moment of time. And in that principle, I could take a step sideways and say that applies across lots of things in the Christian life. We need to learn to be patient with ourselves and to level our expectations of ourselves and each other by the fact that God is teaching and training us, discipling us throughout the whole of our Christian life. It doesn't all come in one instantaneous package. It's something that is necessary learning. Secondly, as we look at Paul's words here, we can talk about comprehensive application. This, in any and every circumstance. And if you follow his teaching through, depending on the translation you have, you find he's taking extremes. The old King James Version was, I know both how to be abased and how to abound. The ESV, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. NIV, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. It's worth doing a wee research on all your multiple um, translations when you go home today, just to see how they take different um, wording to say the same thing. There's an experience of Paul about tough times, and there's an experience of Paul about brilliant times, and he says, I've had to learn to be content in both across the whole gamut of human experience, I've had to learn this lesson of contentment. What did it mean for him personally? I think it's dead easy to sketch the times of need in his personal life. His low points, his times of incredible hardship. We have it on record in the very first chapter of this letter to the Philippians as he writes from his imprisonment in a Roman jail, uncertain not just about his release date from prison, but whether his release date would be in a coffin or able to walk out free man. He didn't know. There's a large part of Paul, I want to come to this next week as an example, a large part of him that expected he would die at the hands of the Roman soldiers. Yet he was content. Doesn't that sound odd? In his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, he listed some of the other hardships he had journeyed through. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, we've been put in prison, we've faced angry mobs, we've worked to exhaustion, we've endured sleepless nights, we've gone without food. And I think for most of us, we're honest, if we got through that list ourselves and came out to the other end of it, surviving by the skin of our teeth and felt as grumpy as grumpy old men and women can ever be, we'd be quite pleased with ourselves. But Paul comes out the other end, not moaning and complaining and 
annoyed that God has let him go through all that. But he says, I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. And Paul's saying more than that. He's saying, I've also learned to be equally content when things are going brilliantly for me. Now, if you're going through a hard time at the moment, you might think, come on, who would find it hard to be content when things are going brilliantly? I thought myself this week, you look back through the past number of months and years, uh, the number of news items of people who have won millions of pounds, say, in a lottery or something. And very soon afterwards, their family relationships are broken down. Their mental health has broken down. Some have committed suicide. They'd lived through years of hardship and put up with it. Reached a point of excessive riches where everything seemed to be made for the rest of their lives and they couldn't handle that. That was more difficult to handle than the hard times. Handling prosperity can be very challenging. And I'm talking not just about material prosperity, but as Christians we can get uneasy when we're prospering mentally, physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, surrounded by a bunch of other people in the church or outside who are anything but. We start to quiz ourselves in the brilliant times of Christian experience. Does it mean the devil doesn't see me as a threat anymore? Everything's going fine financially. Everything's going fine in the family. Everything's going fine in my career path. Everything's going fine in my possessions. Uh Uh-oh. Does that mean the devil's quite content with me as I am? Does it signify that maybe I've been compromising the world around me, that the world isn't getting at me anymore? If the world around me is happy with me and is encouraging me and saying, aren't you brilliant? Aren't you doing well? Does that mean that somehow or other I've compromised my Christian faith and stance? If my bank balance is more black than it's ever been in the whole of the rest of my life, does it mean that I haven't been generous enough to those who are needy, generous enough to the work of God and the gospel at home or abroad? It's that strange thing that Paul emphasizes it here as much as the hardship needing to have a lessening contentment, so the abounding, the, the superabundance, the prosperity, mentally, physically, spiritually, or whatever, that also needs a, a dose of spiritual contentment coming from the hand of God. I dare say on the media one time or another you've watched someone who has come through safe and sound from some disaster, some tragedy. And they're in the middle of the explosion and everybody around them suffered and they came out unscathed. And initially that person is just cock-a-hoop. Isn't this brilliant? I'm still alive. I'm still healthy. I wasn't touched even that terrible bad situation. 
But after a while, that kind of odd guilt sinks in. How come I didn't die in that explosion? How come I wasn't affected by COVID? How come everyone around me was uh, struggling in terms of the economics of the past two years and my business has gone on brilliantly? To be content in prosperity and content in adversity is not just a lesson to be learned, but uh, an application to be comprehensively applied to every situation in life. And Paul had his reasons for talking about abounding. Here was a man who had become an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, who once had opposed the gospel and imprisoned those who followed the way. Here was a man who had experienced miracles of deliverance himself and had been the agent of miracles for others. Here's a man who had fabulous opportunities for witness in the highest courts of the land, in the palaces of royalty. Here's a man with massive evangelistic success. He could look back and trace all the churches that had come into existence as a result of his preaching that town, that village, that city once or twice. It could have gone to his head. It could have made him feel insecure. How come God's blessed me like that and used me like that? He'd had to learn to be content in the abounding as well as the abasing. What we're talking about this morning is saying, have we learned as God's people, or are we in the process of learning how to be content in any and every situation? Because there's some situations in life that we can't get used to, and yeah, I'm content there, yeah, I'm not bothered. But, but hang on, what about all the other things? And here's what Paul's trying to lay on the hearts of the Philippians in any and every situation. Have you learned contentment? Which, of course, begs the question which I'll try and answer in our third heading is how on earth do you get there? What's the process? And I've called it motivational processes. Probably easier if I say what the processes are not. It's not about pretending that things are fine when they're not. We all do it, don't we? Somebody comes along, well, how are things with you this day? Oh, not, not too bad, not too bad, which means absolutely awful, but I'm not going to start telling you what they are. Um, or you wouldn't understand if I tried to tell you. It, it's not pretending, it's not that phony contentment that goes around with a broad grin on the face all day long and never exposes what's inside. Paul's talking about something deep inside his gut. Something deep inside his heart that God had moved and changed that brought about this contentment. It's not about self-help motivational mantras. Um, one of the curses of being on social media is being in touch with various people who have a daily splurge of motivational mantras, most of which are total rubbish, 
uh, and you read them all to see if there's any truth in them or anything worth noting, and you just shake your head. One this week was, ever tried, ever failed? No matter. Try again. Fail again. But fail better this time. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant for all those who've just sat exams during the past couple of months and are waiting for exam results uh, in the next week or two? Tried, failed, well, try again, fail again, just fail better next time, whatever that happens to me. No, that's not what motivates Paul to this place of contentment that he has reached. What it is about is being motivated by the greater, bigger realities. What lies beyond our circumstances. What lies outside of our little, tiny world. Paul's been motivated through a process of learning that God's wisdom does supply all of our need. I can do all things, he says, through Christ who gives me strength. God's wisdom knows how to meet our need. And if I believe with all my heart, however great my need, whatever kind of need I had, God is able to meet that need, then that starts to produce this contentment, this resting content in God's hands. Of course, sometimes God's process is to realign our sense of need. Uh, if you've ever, um, as an older person, perhaps particularly as a younger person, gone to one of the less developed parts of the world, uh, you'll know the experience of coming back home, having had your sense of what is needed in life totally realigned. And you start telling off your parents for wasting water. You don't need to have that tap on as long as that to wash the dishes. Just fill the sink and do it with that water. You don't need to use that much plastic. Yes, drinking water out of bottles might be good, but you don't need that plastic. See, when I was out in darkest Africa, they didn't have any plastic bottles out there, you know. And sense of need has been realigned. Why are you going by car to church this morning, mom and dad? It'd only take you 20 minutes to walk. It'd be far healthier for you. And the sense of need has been realigned by the experience of being in a, in a third world country. Mom, why are you buying more clothes? There's no need to be so fashionably dressed with something new every time you go out uh, to the coffee shop. Sense of need has been realigned by being in a situation that has taught us something about being content with something less. But he's been motivated by that sense that God in his wisdom knows what I need. And so however bad or however good the circumstances, God has supplied that need because he knows best. He'd be motivated to contentment by God's strength, which enabled him which enabled him to do everything God wanted him to do. Now, of course, for Paul himself, even that didn't mean that God had given him the strength to do everything that Paul wanted to do himself. And I'm often struck by that whole instant when he's on his way through Turkey and during the middle of the night, uh, he sees the vision of the Macedonian. 
And Paul had been absolutely sure he wanted to go into Bithynia and into Mycenae. God closed that door. That's not what I'm providing strength for. I'm sending you to, to Greece now. He'd been motivated to contentment by God's goodness, which always blessed him, sometimes in the most unexpected ways. We read in the latter part of that section together how Paul says, you know, when I was in Thessalonica, there wasn't anybody who gave me material support for my ministry. And I've often thought, if you were one of the Thessalonian Christians in Thessalonica, and you read that, you'd feel pretty wick, wouldn't you? Here's the great apostle Paul, and he's writing to Philippians saying, actually, there's nobody in Thessalonica bothered. But you folk in Philippians, or in Philippi, you sent me exactly what I needed at that point in time. Now, if you put yourself in Paul's shoes in Thessalonica, at that point in the, the early stages of his ministry in that part of the world, and the local Christians, the local people aren't giving you a halfpenny, you might start to think, God, what on earth is happening? Lord, I can't cope with this. I'm in desperation. There's no bread on the table for tomorrow. I can't fund the work that you've asked me to do for you. Lord, what on earth am I going to do? And feel anything but contentment. But you see, his need was being provided for his Blessing was going to come, not from the Thessalonians where he was staying at that morning time. It, it was coming from Philippi, miles away. One of our family camping trips, we camped outside of Thessalonica and then decided that on Sunday we'd do something holy and spiritual and we drove to Philippi. It proved to be anything but holy and spiritual. Uh, the road was awful, the kids were sick. The temperature was sky high, it's a bad choice, but it, it always struck me that the distance between those places was colossal in a car, on foot, like Paul, how on earth did he do it? But there he was in Thessalonica, and somebody walked from Philippi to Thessalonica to meet the need that Paul had in Thessalonica from Philippi. Why? Because God knows our need and he arranges how to bless us and to provide for us, even if another Christian in the world doesn't see it at the time. Our times of want can be someone else's opportunity to help. To sum up then, Paul has seen God's hand helping him in every and any situation. He's seen God to be a God of kindness, a God of power, a God of wisdom, a God who stands outside the confines of time. And those things have motivated the Apostle Paul, not just motivated him to work and to do stuff for God, motivated him to rest content in any and every circumstance of life. It is God who had made the difference. He'd had to learn the lesson of 
who God is and what God is like and how God works. And that had made the difference. Going back to uh, friend Shakespeare, his uh, speech runs this way. Two lines only for you. Now is the winter of our discontent, may glorious summer by this son of York. You can go and study it all yourselves to find out what that's about. His point was, however bad the winter had been of discontent, somebody had been like a sun shining into that situation and altered the winter of discontent into the summer of glorious sunshine. I think that sums up pretty well what Paul had discovered. What he had learned by his interaction with God himself, that there's someone who'd entered every situation of abasement or abounding, of want or of plenty, and given him a spirit of contentment that took the winter of discontent and made it the glorious summer of divine blessing. My final thought for you this morning is simply this, that I think there's no better way to commend the true gospel of Jesus Christ in a world of discontent than to be a Christian who shows contentment in a difficult, difficult day. And tomorrow morning, when you're just about to be a grumpy old woman at coffee time or a grumpy old man at the bowling club or a grumpy young person in amongst your student friends or whatever, think to yourself, the lesson of being content in this moment, the lesson of showing to my pals around me that despite the circumstances I have learned to be content, an amazing demonstration of the power and grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, we are first of all simply struck in this passage by uh, the changes you brought about in uh, the Apostle Paul himself, the things he learned as he walked with you and talked with you and interacted with you. We thank you, Lord, for the changes in his personality and outlook on life, this learned lesson of contentment in any and every circumstance. But we thank you that you've taken that illustration of Paul's to apply to our hearts today. And we thank you, you know us individually those who are struggling with things going so well they can't believe it, waiting for the bubble to burst. Those struggling with things so bad they can't see how they'll survive tomorrow. Lord, whatever we are in between those extremes, may we today have progressed by your grace in being more content in whatsoever state we find ourselves in. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.